Well, we just finished up a great week of missions, and we have another one of our missionary couples with us today. The Sackmans are here, and uh, Brother Sackman is going to give an update for about five minutes here of what's been going on in India. And then tonight, we want to encourage you, if you're not involved in one of our other ministries, to come back. He'll have the whole service this evening. He'll have some pictures and things to tell you about the ministry there. But Brother Sackman and Rowena, it's great to have you with us. So share with us what's been going on in these past years. Okay, it's great to be here once again. This is a church has a long-standing association with our mission for three generations, starting with my grandfather, M.T. Rajnur, my parents, Dick and Yamu Sackman, and now we're the third generation, uh, Rohini and me. And uh, we want to thank you for uh, your prayers and your support over the years because India is such a, a challenging country to work in. It's not... Uh, a country like the United States is a very ancient country, yet a very modern country, a country of con contrasts. And how you do missionary work, missions, ministry in India, is uh, you really need God's power, his leading, his wisdom in doing the work. Our work is in central India, in the state of Maharashtra. And uh, we speak the Marathi language there. Every, uh, every state in India has its own language, as, as well as the national language. And you can get along with English, too, because it's, everybody speaks, not everybody, but English is uh, spoken by quite a considerable amount of people there. But our work uh, there is in three areas. One is church planting through house church cell groups, and that, is, that ministry is growing. Come tonight and see how that ministry is growing through cell groups, house churches, and... Uh, Another part of our work is education. That's uh, taking kids into a boarding situation and sending them to school. But in the boarding atmosphere, they're taught the Bible, songs, verses from the Bible, memory verses. And before they leave, after eight years, many have put their faith in Jesus Christ. These are kids from Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, uh, and um, low-caste backgrounds. And the third part of our work is in evangelism. And uh, this part of the ministry is really growing through the music ministry. And what we, I see back here is uh, they're going to perform or uh, sing this group, uh, the church group. It reminds us of our own group back in India where we call the villagers out during the night, during the evening time, and we sing to them. Christian songs, and at the end present the gospel. And through that approach, we've seen the doors open to many areas that were once closed, that were hostile to the gospel. And God is using the mu music ministry to bring many to faith in Jesus Christ. You'll see that tonight too. Hopefully the video works. We had had some problems with the video working, but I pray that it works tonight. And in India country I love, though I'm a U.S. citizen, my wife's Indian, but uh, it's a country I love, I've grown to love, and uh, it's a time when God is working through this country, and from the north to the south, east to the west, he's using the church, the local church, to be the, mission, to be the vehicle of missions, to carry the gospel to their own people groups, to their own caste groups, because India is a country that is based on the caste system. 
And in that context, we do our gospel work. And God has blessed us, and he's blessed us, and we are sharing that blessing with you this evening. So please come this evening to hear us once again. Thank you. Before we open God's word this morning, let's, let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the beautiful sunshine that you've given us today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here this morning as your family. And Lord, I'm thankful that, uh, that we live in a country where we can gather here freely to worship you. And Lord, we all come in here this morning having many different things going on in our lives this past week. And it's my prayer that we might be able to put all those things aside and just focus on you. Focus on your word and just really focused on worshiping you. Lord, you're aware that in a congregation our side, there are many, many of us that have needs that we're crying out to you for, whether relational needs or spiritual needs or emotional needs or physical needs. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to, to give strength and comfort as we go through those difficult times. Lord, we're thankful that uh, you love us so much that whatever difficulty we might be facing, we don't face it alone. That you walk us through those difficult times. You're there right beside us. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we had in this last week to, to have our missionary conference and to be partnered with so many great missionaries all around the world. Lord, thank you that uh, from the faithfulness of your people that we can extend your ministry to many different continents. Lord, this morning we think of Jan and Harry Gebert, our missionaries of the week, and pray that you would just continue to help them as they uh, minister to Islamic countries. And Lord, I pray that you would give them the strength and the wisdom uh, to know what to do and when to do it. And, and as they train other to go into those countries where we can't even go, may you give them wisdom and strength and training. We thank you for the sacraments and their ministry in India and just pray that as their home, uh, that you would just give them here in the United States for, uh, for uh, some time, give them some refreshment, some encouragement, and, and as they share what you're doing in India, may we be excited and, uh, and continue to pray that you would just work in that country. And Father, finally, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that, uh, that we're able to, to have your word in our hands. And, and yet, Lord, we know that having your word in our hands is not enough. It needs to be in our hearts. And Lord, this morning, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit might take your word and impress it on our hearts and help us to live it out in our lives. We'll give you the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing in our E100 series, the Essential 100 Stories of the Bible. And uh, we have a few more weeks in this series. And this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8. So if you have your Bible and want to turn to Acts chapter 8, uh, we're going to camp out there for, uh, for a few moments this morning. But before we look at the text... Uh, this morning we're talking about faithful Philip. We're talking about faithful Philip. And, and before we read in Acts, 
uh, about this, this character, Philip, uh, I have a question to ask you. And the question is this. Are you faithful? Kind of an interesting question, right? Uh, maybe has many different answers. But uh, as you think about that, are you faithful? We ask ourselves a lot of questions, don't we? Even a lot of strange questions. But I guarantee probably not a lot of us have asked each other, are you faithful? And as I was thinking about this question, if I'm honest, you know, I'm faithful in a lot of things. I really am. I'm faithful in a lot of things every day. Pretty much every day, I'm faithful in getting a shower and getting dressed, and you're all thankful for that. I know that. Uh, you're all extremely thankful for that, but I'm faithful in that. I routinely do that every single day. I'm also faithful in eating. Uh, there's not a day goes by that I don't miss an opportunity to eat, and I bet you are the same way as well. As I was thinking about my life, I'm also faithful in drinking cherry Coke. Um, it's not a day unless I have a cherry Coke. And so I, I'm faithful in that. Uh, I'm also faithful in some other things. I, I'm faithful in making messes. And my wife is going to say amen to that. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm pretty faithful in that. It doesn't, a day doesn't go by that I probably don't make a mess somewhere. I'm also faithful in sleeping. Uh, you know, I sleep every day, and I'm sure you do too. So, you know, if, if we answer that question, we can answer that question positively. We all are faithful in some things each and every day. But as I was thinking about myself, you know what? There are also times, and there are also things that I'm not faithful in doing every day. I'm not real faithful every day in exercising. Uh, even though I probably should be. I I'm not always faithful in driving the speed limit. Can I get an amen on that one? Um, I I I'm not always faithful in that. Uh, I I'm not always faithful in being patient with my children. Uh, I'm not always the patient, loving dad that I probably should be. I'm not faithful in cleaning up my messes, and my wife will say amen to that as well. Uh, but, you know, I'm good at making them. I'm not real faithful in cleaning them up. I'm also not always faithful in spending quality time with God. Reading my Bible, spending time in prayer, just personally, for personal growth and connection. I'm not always faithful in that. I'm not always faithful in serving other people and the opportunities that come my way. You see, if we're honest, when we ask ourselves that question, am I faithful, we can say yes and no to that question. But this morning, uh, the reason I asked you that question is because I really want to develop it a little bit more, and the question I really want us all to answer this morning is, are we faithful in the most important thing? Are we faithful in the most important thing? And my hope today is that as we look at Philip's life, We'll be challenged to be faithful in the most important thing. Now, this character, Philip, uh, he doesn't get a, as much press in the New Testament as, you know, some other heavyweights like Paul or Peter. You know, those are the, the heavyweight P kind of guys. But Philip, uh, Philip is found in, in the beginning of the book of Acts. And although he doesn't get as much press as Paul and Peter, we can learn a lot from Philip's life. 
And the question I guess we need to start off with, who was this Philip guy? Who was this Philip guy? I mean, you know, we've heard of Peter, we've heard of Paul. Maybe Philip is a little new to us. Who was Philip? Well, first of all, he was one of the first deacons in the church. He was one of the first deacons in the church. Acts 6 shows Satan trying to disrupt the peace and prosperity of the early church. In the beginning of Acts, we see the birth of the church and marvelous growth. Acts 2 tells us that 3,000 people trusted Christ at Pentecost. Acts 5 says many more were still added to the church. And so Satan is unhappy with the, the success of the church, and he sows a spirit of complaining among God's people, hoping to set believer against believer. That's what's happening here in Acts 6. And you know what? Countless works of God have been destroyed this way. God blesses a church. People trust Christ as their Savior. The church begins to reach its community. The church starts to send missionaries out to all over the world. And then someone complains that he or she is not being appreciated or being neglected. Bitter dissension begins. The focus of the church becomes inward and not outward. And the ministry loses its effectiveness. And that's what's happening here in chapter 6 of Acts. Look at Acts 6.1. It says, In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews were among them, uh, Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Here we see there's a problem. And the problem is simply this, favoritism and failure to care. Uh, there was a favoritism and failure to care. The, the Hellenistic Jews, the, the, the widows of the Greek-speaking Jews, they were being overlooked in the care. Now, the Hebrew widows, they were being taken care of. But the Greek-speaking widows, they, they were not being taken care of. Jerusalem had a large minority of Greek-speaking Jews. They had lived abroad for many years, but returned to Jerusalem because it was their holy city. The Hebraic Jews considered these Hellenistic Jews to be second-class Israelites. They looked down upon them. With many of the Hellenistic Jews returning to spend their final days in Jerusalem, an issue of caring for their widows arose because a large number of Greek-speaking Jewish women outlived their husbands. They outlived their husbands. And even after the amazing beginning of the church where both Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews trusted Christ, there was still a division in the church. They still had problems. Their conversion didn't remove all their prejudices. So the Greek-speaking Jews complained that the Hebrew-speaking Jews were favoring their own kind. There was a problem, and it was favoritism and failure to care. As we read on in, in verse 2 of Acts 6, it says, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. You see, they came up with a plan, and very simply it was this, multiply the ministers. 
multiplied the ministers. Evidently, someone had suggested that Jesus' 12 disciples should handle the matter of caring for these neglected widows themselves. However, doing this would have given them little time to pray and share the word of God. After all, Jesus invested three years of his life with his disciples, training them and preparing them to carry on the ministry without them, training them to, to preach Uh, God's word and share the good news with those they come in contact with. So instead of getting overloaded with this opportunity to serve others, they delegated this important responsibility to seven men. And the idea pleased the whole group. And it's interesting, these seven men that they chosen, they all had Greek names. So isn't it interesting that uh, to, to, in order to rectify the situation and minister to the Greek, uh, Greek-speaking widows, they chose seven Greek guys with Greek names to do it. In Acts 6.3, it says, Brothers, chose, choose seven men among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and, wi- and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. Before they chose these seven men, there were some prerequisites. There are some qualifications uh, for these guys to, to carry on this important ministry. The first one is this. It says they must be among you. They must be believers in the church. They must come from the church family. They have to be known. They have to be part of the church. They have to be connected. They must come from among you. Second, they, they, they must have a good reputation. In the New American Standard, in the New King James, it says that these men must have a good reputation. They must be men of integrity. They must have proven themselves over time to be men of integrity. Not compromising, not making moral compromises, but they were men of integrity. Another prerequisite is they were full of the Spirit. They submitted the control of their lives to the authority of the Holy Spirit. And finally, they must be men full of wisdom. Not only do they have a knowledge of the Bible, but they practically apply it to everyday life. They live it out. They are wise guys. And so that's some of the prerequisites in trying to clear up this this problem with the early church. And then in verse 5 and 6 of Acts chapter 6, it says, This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, Nicolaus from Antioch to convert a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And now we see the people. And Philip was one of the lucky seven. He was one of those seven guys that met all of those prerequisites and that they had chosen to help with this problem, help to solve this problem. Philip was one of those guys. He, he had all of those characteristics and qualifications. And finally, Acts 6-7 said, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And now we see productivity. Care and conversion increased. Care and conversion increased. These guys got busy doing uh, the the work of the ministry, being the deacons, being those servants, uh, helping those widows in need. And so the care increased, but but also the disciples' ministry increased because more and more people became Christians. They came to know the Lord. 
And so here we see that Philip was one of the first deacons in the church. That's who he was. But that's not the only thing that, uh, only thing that he was. He was also one of the first missionaries of the church. Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to be for the rest of our time. And in the beginning of Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, it says, And Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. Now we know that Stephen was stoned in, in chapter 7 of Acts for his faith. He was killed for his faith. It says, And Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned for, deeply for him. And, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Here as we start in chapter 8 of Acts, we see another problem. And that's very simply per persecution and oppression. Persecution and oppression. The church is undergoing an attack. Persecution up to this point had been directed to the apostles and their close associates who were proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were the targets of the persecution. The apostles, Jesus' chosen guys. And on the day that Stephen was martyred, a great persecution began against the entire church led by Saul Tarsus. He was focused on destroying the church. He wanted to tear the church apart. And he was so focused on destroying the church and tearing it apart that he went from house to house trying to find Christians. And once he found them, he drug them off and threw them in prison. Persecution has arrived. The church is under fire. As we continue in verse 4, it says, Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And even though they had a problem, there was still a plan. And the plan was very simply this. Relocate and repeat. Relocate and repeat. Even though the believers were scattered, the persecution didn't stop the preaching. The oppression simply changed the ministry location. But it didn't stop the ministry of sharing the gospel with others. Now, this is a pretty, that's a pretty amazing verse. It's just a few words, but think about that. Put yourself in, your, in their shoes. You're in Jerusalem as a member of the Jerusalem church, and all of a sudden persecution has broken out, and, and you're under fire. You're a wanted individual, and now because of the persecution, you're scattered all over the country. And now you relocate somewhere else in Samaria. What do you do? I mean, persecution isn't fun. So you're relocated. Are you going to try that again? I mean, you just lived through it the first time. Are you going to get busy and, and, and be active in, in, in God's ministry, or are you just going to try to lay low? You know, hey, that last time, uh, we got in a lot of trouble. So let's just kind of blend in. Let's lay low. Let's, let's not stick out. But that's not what they did. They relocated and they repeated the ministry. It didn't no matter where they were, they were going to serve God. It's a pretty amazing, amazing few words there in verse 4. Moving on to verse 5, it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Christ there. Next we see people. Philip was one of the many believers that were scattered from Jerusalem. In Acts 6, we see Philip's main ministry responsibility was caring for the needs 
of the widows. He was a servant. He was a deacon. And now in Acts 8, we see his, his ministry responsibilities kind of changed. He's not just caring for, for the widows, but now he is out front proclaiming God's word, preaching God's word, sharing the gospel with other people. And he's doing it in a foreign country. Remember we said that the Jews despised the Samaritans two weeks ago because uh, the Samaritans were racially broad. They, they, were, uh, they intermarried with other uh, nations, and so the Jews looked down on them because they were racially broad, and they, they also looked down because they were theologically narrow. They only accepted Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so here we see that Philip finds himself in this country of people that the Jews have historically looked down on And he gets busy serving them and ministering to them and sharing the gospel with them. And the interesting thing is the Samaritans and the Jews had one thing in common. They both were looking for the coming Messiah. They both were waiting for the coming Messiah. So the location and people changed. But Philip's message was was the same. Jesus is the Messiah. He preached the gospel. And now we look at verse 6 in Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, and it says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so now we see productivity. The Samaritans were saved. The Samaritans were saved. Philip was faithful to, to, to his ministry there in Samaria, and many Samaritans were saved. He was having a great ministry there. He didn't give up after the persecution. He stayed faithful to God, and God was faithful and used him as his servant in Samaria. So that's a little bit of who, who Philip was. He was one of the first deacons. He was also one of the first missionaries of the church. But most importantly this morning, I want to look at what was Philip? What was Philip? And the first thing that Philip was, was he was in touch with the Holy Spirit. He was in touch with the Holy Spirit. As we start in verse 26 in Acts chapter 8, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot. In Acts 6.3, it says, when Philip was installed as a deacon, what does it say? He was full of the spirit. He was full of the spirit. That means that not only was he full of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, but he was open to the Spirit's direction. So we know that Philip was in touch with the Holy Spirit. Philip knew not to resist the direction of the Holy Spirit. He was sensitive to, to his guidance. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads through an inner voice, sometimes through difficult circumstances and persecution, and sometimes even through angels. That we see here, God's ministering spirits. But Philip was in touch with the Holy Spirit. And we see he gets, he gets some directions. Now, I don't know about you, but as guys, we get a bad rap when it comes to directions, don't we? It says that, you know, as guys, everyone thinks that we don't like directions. 
And, and, and it's hard, you know. My, my son loves Legos, and I loved Legos when I was a kid. And, and, and my son got some Legos for Christmas, and they were pretty big sets. And I open them up, and they're like two sets of directions. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking at the picture, and I just want the picture. I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to page for a, page through a hundred pages of these directions to get to the picture. I just want the picture. And sometimes, as Christians, you know, we don't like to follow directions. We just want the end product. And here we see Philip is given some directions. He's led by the Holy Spirit. Direction number one, go to the desert road that leads to Gaza. Now, Philip is in Samaria. He's relocated once, and a revival is taking place. Many people are getting saved. And this amazing ministry that's happening in Samaria has even reached Jerusalem, 40 miles away. So this, this, uh, this crusade that Philip is, is, is carrying out in Samaria is going well. And news of it is spreading. He is successful. Now in the midst of this amazing ministry in the city of Samaria, an angel sent by God directs him to go to the desert road leading to Gaza. He goes from an exciting city and a growing congregation to a lonely desert road and a congregation of one. Put yourself in Philip's shoes. Because of persecution, he already had to relocate once. He goes to Samaria, and he's just faithful there, and God uses him, and the church grows there, and people get saved, and things are going well. And in the midst of that, all of a sudden, God says, Philip, I need you to leave. I need you to leave this great ministry that's happening. I need you to go by yourself and take the desert road to Gaza. There was two roads that led to Gaza at that time. Uh, the desert road led to kind of the ruins of Gaza. It was, the city was rebuilt closer to the, to the shore, and so this was the road that kind of went through the, ru- the ruins. It was a road that no one took, and God says, hey, Philip, go there. Go there. And look at his response. So he started out. There was no debate between Philip and God. There was no, well, let me, let me get a little bit more information, God. I'm not quite clear on your directions, even though it was pretty clear. There was no give and take. Philip said, okay, I'm gone. And so he started out. That was direction number one. Look at direction number two. It was very simply this, go to the chariot. Go to the chariot. We see that, that, that Philip is, is on his way there and uh, And now all of a sudden on this deserted road, here comes a chariot with an important guy sitting on it. He was from the the government of Ethiopia. Ethiopia was a large kingdom south of Egypt, and the Greeks and the Romans thought it represented the outer limits of society. This was really the ends of the earth. And the eunuch was a high official, a finance minister for Ethiopia. And on this desert and deserted road, Philip came across a chariot with this man reading the book of Isaiah. In the middle of nowhere comes an amazing ministry opportunity. And the Spirit said, Philip, go approach the chariot. Now, you know, that chariot's moving along pretty fast. and, And God says, hey, you got your running shoes on? Go up to the chariot. Take off. Start running. 
And look at Philip's response. So he ran up to the chariot. He just takes off. He just goes. You see, Philip was so in touch with the Holy Spirit that he followed God's lead. You know what? Divine appointments await us all if we're obedient to God's leading. That was Philip's experience, wasn't it? He took him from Jerusalem to Samaria to the middle of nowhere, and God provided all these divine appointments for him. And he does the same for us, too. He does. Philip was so in touch with the Spirit that he became the touch of God anywhere, in any way, and to anyone that God asked him to. He was so in touch with God and in touch with the Holy Spirit that that he was willing to serve wherever God put him. Philip was ready to serve anywhere at any time. And the principle here that we can learn from Philip is very simply this. If we're in touch with the Holy Spirit, we all should be in the right place at the right time for prime ministry opportunities. Let me say that again. If, if, If we're in touch with the Holy Spirit like Philip is, we all should be in the right place at the right time for prime ministry opportunities. If we're open to God's leading, if, if we are following his lead, if, if we are seeking opportunities that, as we live our day, we should all be in the right place at the right time for these ministry opportunities. It shouldn't be unusual. We shouldn't just read about a story like this in the Bible and say, well, that's an amazing story. God did an amazing thing there. You know what? This should be the norm in all of our lives. And sadly, it's not the norm in my life. Sadly, I miss it. And a lot of times it's because I'm not in touch with the Holy Spirit. I don't follow his leading. I follow my own leading. I do my own thing. And so we see that Philip was in touch with the Holy Spirit. We also see that Philip was in touch with God's word. Starting in verse 30, we continue. It says, then Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Then the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? You know, this Ethiopian was a noble man on a noble search. The Ethiopian eunuch was the seeker. And we know that because he made the long pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. And as he traveled back from that trip uh, from Jerusalem, he was reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And so this, this man was a seeker. He, he was seeking out after God. He wanted to learn more about God. He knew that Jerusalem was an important place uh, to go and to worship and to learn. And, and on his way back, he is reading the scriptures. He is seeking the truth about God. And he's reading Isaiah 53. Now, Jewish thought was divided on the interpretation of this passage. Some thought that the slaughtered sheep represented the nation. Others thought it represented Isaiah and that he was speaking of himself. And others still thought that it was referring to the Messiah. But the bottom line, the Ethiopian was was searching for truth and knew where to look. He was looking into God's word, but he was struggling to understand it. He was struggling to, to put the pieces together. And little did he know that God would have the man for the job ready for him on a deserted road in the middle of nowhere. 
Talk about an amazing opportunity. Eager to know the truth, the Ethiopian invites Philip to join him in the chariot for a discussion on the book of Isaiah. And you know what? Because Philip was in touch with God's word, he could confidently answer the call of this Ethiopian to get up in the chariot and have that discussion. Because he was familiar with God's word, because he had, had handled God's word, he could say, yes, I'd love to sit down and talk, with you, talk to you about this. Verse 35 says, Then Philip began with the very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Philip was knowledgeable enough in the Scriptures to answer and explain the eunuch's questions about the current passage, but Philip didn't stop there. He just didn't stop with the man's questions, but he, after he answered the questions... He took that opportunity to tell him the good news about Jesus. He took the opportunity to point it back to Jesus Christ. John MacArthur said this, Every believer should strive to be proficient in the scriptures so that we, too, can meet people at the point of their perplexity and lead them to their Savior. We should be ready just like Philip was, able to explain the scriptures and point people to Jesus Christ. And then in, in Acts 8:36 it says as they travel along the road they came to some water and the eunuch said, "Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized?" And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. You know, we don't know how long Philip and and this eunuch talked about Isaiah. We don't know how long their conversation was. We don't know how long they traveled together in this chariot. But you know what the thing that we do know the, the Ethiopian was convinced and he was marvelously converted. He was convinced and he was marvelously converted. And not only did the Ethiopian trust Christ, but he wanted to take the next step and be baptized. He, he wanted to, to make an external declaration of the internal transformation that happened in his life, that, that he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that, that, that God now lived in him. He wanted to go public with his faith. He wanted to be baptized. And the principle here for us is pretty clear too. If we are in touch with God's word, we all should be capable of confidently communicating Christ to others. If we're in touch with God's word, every single one of us in this room should be capable of confidently communicating Christ to others. I mean, it's easy for us to come here and sing these songs about Jesus and, and praise Jesus and say that we love Jesus, but if we really love him, if he's really changed our life, if he is our life, that's what we were singing about in that last song, then we all should be able to confidently communicate Christ to others. No excuses. No excuses. We should know his word. We should be so in touch with it that we can do that. And find the last thing that we learn about Philip and what Philip was is he was in touch with people. He was in touch with people. It does little good to be in touch with the spirit and in touch with the word if we're not in touch with people. You know, God just doesn't want us to come here and, and, and be fed and, 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 and just kind of have all this knowledge if we are not in touch with people and serving other people and sharing it with other people. If Philip would not have loved people with Christ's love, 
he would have never reached across the substantial barriers between the Jews and the Samaritans or the Jews and the Gentile Ethiopian. But because of Christ's love, he was willing to, to breach those barriers, to go to any level to reach out to people. He genuinely cared about the spiritual condition and the eternal destination of the people around him. And that led him to show compassion and to communicate Christ. He was in touch with people. And the principle is pretty clear for us. If we're in touch with people, we should all be cultivating caring relationships with those who don't know Christ. We should all be cultivating caring relationships with those who don't know Christ. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's why we are still here. God has not taken us to heaven because he wants to use us as his hands and feet and his mouthpiece to reach out to those around us and share the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to be in touch with people. We should be cultivating those caring relationships with those who don't know Christ. And so this morning, the challenge is very simply this. Will we follow Philip's footsteps? Will we follow Philip's footsteps? And, and I want to share an example with you of a time in this last month that I'm not real proud about. About a month ago, my neighbor came to my house, knocked on the door. He collects the box tops for education for our kids to bring into school, and so he was dropping them off. And it was, it was like the beginning of March, and so I hadn't seen him all winter. It's been cold, and, and he wasn't outside as much, and so I hadn't seen him a whole lot. So I asked him, I said, you know, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. I said, it's been a rough winter. I said, oh, you know, why has it been so rough? I said, well, I said, my dad got sick. And, uh, and so I was spending a lot of time helping, caring for, helping my mom care for my dad, and my dad eventually died. And he said, because it took so much time to help care for my dad and help my mom out, I lost my job. So now I'm unemployed. He said, it's been a rough, rough winter. But I'm really hoping the spring is better. And he stood in my, in my door, in, inside my front door, pouring out his heart to me. And the only thing I said was, I'm sorry to hear that. I missed a great opportunity with my neighbor. The next morning I, I woke up and I, and I realized, man, I blew it. I blew it. And the following week I was having a conversation with my dad and I was sharing with him, you know, dad, I, I just really blew it with my neighbor. I had a great opportunity. He was, he was hurting. He was searching and, and I missed it. And my dad said, you know, you might have missed it, but look for other opportunities. A few weeks later, I came home uh, from work one day, and my neighbor was out on his porch, and so I went over to check in and see how I was doing. And he was in a better mood this day. He said, you know, he said, hey, I, I got a job. It's a temporary job, but it's a job, and, and it's doing what I like doing, and, 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 and it's what I'm good at. And he was, he was upbeat, and he said, there's a, there's a possibility that, uh, that it could turn into to a full-time job. And, and so I was just asking him lots of questions and spent 10 or 15 minutes just, just you know, excited with him. And, and, and at the end of that conversation, I said, I said you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you. I'm going to pray that, that, that this job just doesn't, isn't just a temporary job, but it's a, it'll turn into a full-time job. 
I'm going to commit to praying for that. And I hope that this works out for you. And I walked away feeling better because he knows what I do. And he, and he wanted to tell me that. And, and, and now I need to look for more opportunities to develop that relationship and follow up and, and talk a little bit more. But you know what? I, I didn't follow in Philip's footsteps that day. But, you know, one of the main ways that we can follow in, in Philip's footsteps is, is to live pi-squared lives. And this is something that we're going to talk about uh, here at Mount Calvary in the coming days. Because it's something that Pastor Dick and myself really believe in, that, that we need to be living pi-squared lives. You might say, well, what is pi-squared lives? Well, pi-squared simply means pray, invest, invite. Pray, invest, invite. And so first of all, let's talk about pray. We need to pray for those who are far from God. Uh, we need to pray for those who are far from God. And I encourage you, would you be willing to make a list? To make a prayer list and pray for people that are far from God. Start with a family member. Do you have a family member who's far from God? And would you commit to praying for them? How about a friend? On your list, would you, you put a friend on that list and, and pray for them? How about a coworker, a classmate, or a teammate? Someone that, that, that you work with, or someone that you go to school with, or someone that you play sports with, or, or do any kind of extracurricular activity you spend time with. That you know that they're far from God. Would you put them on your list? And finally, a neighbor. And would you make a list of those four individuals, and would you commit to praying for them every day? Praying that, that, that they would realize that they need a Savior. Praying for opportunities that you can, uh, you can be a light in their life. Praying for boldness so that you can share with them. But I believe it has to start with prayer. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not naturally wired just to, uh, to go up and start those kind of conversations. But we need to really spend time on our knees in prayer praying for these people burden for them to come to Christ because if we don't pray for them we'll never do anything about it we'll never do anything about it so it starts with prayer the next thing is we need to invest we need to build authentic relationships and real friendships with those who are far from God and you know what you only build relationships through time it takes time it's going to take time for me to build a relationship with my neighbor I need to be committed to, 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 to spending the time to build that relationship. You'll be much more successful in reaching people for Christ if you're really their friends first. It starts with being their friend. You gotta be their friend. People don't care what you know until, you, until they know that you care. And that's so true. They gotta see it lived out in your life through your love and through your care. Now, if I was gonna take a survey this morning... Of, of when and how you came to Christ? Was it through someone that you knew that you had a relationship with or someone that you didn't know and, and, and you trusted Christ because of their influence? I would say that probably 90% of us in this room came to Christ as a result of someone who we've had a relationship with. That individual, whether a mom or a dad, a sister or brother, uh, a Sunday school teacher, uh, uh, a coach or whoever, they, uh, they invested in our lives and at some point they shared the truth of the gospel with us and we responded. See, it happens through relationships. It happens through relationships. But you know what? This can be challenging, so we have to be intentional. 
And as I think about my life and what I do, it's really challenging for me. I spend a lot of time here behind these walls or with people that are sitting in this congregation. So I need to be intentional about looking for opportunities to build relationship with those who are far from God, to build friendships. We need to be intentional. Finally, we need to invite. We need to invite them to an appropriate level of commitment. You know, you've prayed, you've invested, you've developed relationships, and now you need to look for opportunities to invite them into a spiritual conversation. You need to look for opportunities to invite them to attend a church service, to come to life group, to, uh, to, to do a Bible study, or even to trust Christ. It's not enough just to pray and invest if we never invite. There's got to come a point in time where we get to that moment and we invite them. We invite them to trust Christ. We, we tell them about Christ. We tell them what Christ means to us. We have to do that. John MacArthur said this, our responsibility is simply to make our witness faithful. It's God's responsibility alone to make it effective. So the challenge for us this morning is, ask yourself, are you faithful in the most important thing, telling others about our Savior? Are you faithful in that? Will you commit to living a pi-squared life? The only way we're going to reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ is if we all make that our commitment. Will we follow Philip's footsteps? Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to look at the life of an amazing man. A man who was faithful to your leading, faithful to your word, and faithful to share with people how they can know Jesus as their Savior. And Lord, it's my prayer that we've all would be challenged this morning to look at our lives, to look at, are we following Philip's footsteps? It's my prayer this morning that, that we would be challenged to live pi-squared lives, that we'd be praying for those far from God, that we invest our lives in building relationships with those far from God, not compromising what we believe in, not putting ourselves in situations where we don't agree with, but just reaching out in love and developing relationships with them. And then would you give us the boldness and the courage and the words to invite them, to invite them to, to have a, a personal relationship with you, to trust you as their savior. Father, we cannot do this on our own. We need your help and strength. Help us to live pi-squared lives. In Jesus' name, amen.